Please, if you have them, open your Bibles or turn in your phone apps to uh, Genesis, Genesis chapters 2 and 3. While you're, um, while you're doing that, I want to thank you, uh, thank all of you that took the time this past week to uh, send me your questions. I had asked um, those of you who weren't here last week, I had asked those who were here to send me questions last week that um, they may have had arising uh, uh, out of the shooting in the theater in Aurora. And um, man, I was overwhelmed um, with your amazing questions. Overwhelmed in a good way. You know, and a, a, I was talking to Jill uh, on Tuesday after the emails kept coming in, and, and I told her, I said, Hey, Jill, if you ever hear me ask them to email me questions again, I said, uh, Honey, I want, I want you to ask me one question. And she said, What? I said, Ask me, what were you thinking? No, but <laughs> I really appreciate uh, the questions that you sent. Um, and you know, you don't have to wait for me to ask you to send a question or to email. I found, um, I found that when I was getting your emails this past week, um, well, it felt a whole lot less lonely. It felt um, that you were right there with me, um, together with God, as uh, just trying to prepare the message uh, this week. So please uh, go ahead and keep them coming. Um, have you been watching the Olympics? Yeah. Um, I caught myself this morning in the car on the way to church, and um, I'm sorry to do this to you because you may not get it out of your head either, but I caught myself humming those two big kettle drums, right? Boom, boom, ba-boom, boom, ba-boom, right? And I thought... Um, I thought, wow, that's just really cool. It's, sort, it's like... It's like right up there when you hear that uh, football's coming, when you hear that NFL theme, right? Dun, 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 dun. You know, it's like Monday Night Football. Someone hissed at football in, in the front row here. Pray for them. Um, <laughs> and so I started, every time I hear that fanfare, I thought, God, that, uh, I was thinking we'd adopt a tradition at West Bowls that uh, as I come up to give the message, You know, we play that fanfare, you know, and, and then I'd like one of those little people with a sign with my name on it. There's this like, Pastor of West Bowls. Like the, you know, why do the, why do the uh, gymnasts just get that? You know, they walk with a little sign. And then like they're behind, I, I'd have to walk like this though. And that could just be how we roll here at West Bowls. But yeah, the thrill of victory and the agony of, feet, of defeat, right? We've seen... Uh, Oh, lots of thrills of victory. Michael Phelps, for example, the, the women's gymnastic team. Uh, and boy, uh, one lasting image of the agony of defeat is going to be Jordan Weber, isn't it? Um, who didn't feel for that young lady? Who, by the way, uh, I thought just responded. Uh, you want to talk about uh, responding with grace under pressure. Um, I thought Jordan did that very well. And... Um, um, wow, man, of course, uh, our own uh, Olympic champion from Centennial. Uh, yeah, uh, Jennifer, I can't think of her. Missy, Missy Franklin. Yeah, and listen, I, I made the appeal to the 8 o'clock service. So I'm going to make the appeal to you all, too, because in a crowd of this size with someone so close, I'll bet there's someone who either knows that family or knows someone who knows that family. And the reason I ask is if you do know them, would you let me know? I would love... I would love when it's all said and done just someday to invite Missy to come and, uh, and talk to us sometime. 
Um, by all accounts, it seems like she knows the Lord. And so I'd love to hear what she has to say about her experience in all of this, number one. And number two, I would really love to see a real Olympic gold medal, wouldn't you? <laughs> so uh, if you know of the Franklins or their church, um, I forget which one it was, um, um, let me know. Um, uh, last week, we uh, just cracked open the window, and I'll crack it open a little more. It's going to be a while uh, until I throw it all the way open, um, a number of weeks as we uh, start this uh, next sermon series. But uh, I cracked the, the window a bit um, on a far more serious agony of defeat um, than what happens in the Olympics or sports. Um, the agony out of such things as... Um, a Columbine that we all lived through, and then uh, most recently, uh, that shooting in Aurora. And I um, want to continue to uh, uh, process that with you and talk about that a little bit with you, uh, especially some questions, I think, that um, can come out of that shooting um, about God uh, and about life and how we view the world and uh, our role in it. So, you know, just small questions, right? <laughs> Great big questions. I, um, I want to begin this morning by sharing with you a true story. It's a story about uh, three people, a woman, uh, her name is Melanie, a pastor, and a Bible teacher. One Sunday morning, Melanie went to church. And after hearing the pastor give an inspiring sermon about living with passion, Melanie came up to him after the service. And she was in tears. I've lost my passion for God. And my joy in life, she said. I used to be, I used to be a fired up Christian who poured herself into her faith, but now I feel nothing toward God. And I'm always depressed. I used to run marathons, she said, but I just sit around. My husband and I. We used to be so close, but now we feel like strangers. Church. Church used to seem so exciting, but now when I, when I make it, it mostly just bores me to death. I used to love to read my Bible and to pray, she said. But now, I just feel dead. Melanie went on to express just how badly she wanted the passion she had just heard about in the pastor's message. She wanted to know how to come alive again. As she continued, the pastor learned that 
Melanie's downward spiral began about four years earlier when she lost a baby in childbirth. As long as she could remember, Melanie told him, she wanted to have kids. She didn't marry until her mid-30s, so to beat the biological clock, she and her husband immediately began trying to have a baby. And after three years with no success, they discovered that because of a medical condition, it was unlikely they would ever be able to conceive. But Melanie's um, extreme disappointment over that news was short-lived for quite remarkably... Melanie conceived. We thought it was a miracle, she said. Her pregnancy went forward without incident, but her delivery had tragic complications. The umbilical cord was wrapped around her baby's neck, choking the child to death during delivery. And Melanie sat there in tears and described to the pastor how their miracle had turned into a nightmare. And their life, she said, turned into one tormenting, why? Question. Why would God miraculously give us a child? She kept asking, only to take the baby away while coming into the world. Why did this happen? And why did it happen to them? Even more tormenting, why was God preventing me, she said, from conceiving again? Standing there that morning talking to the pastor, Melanie's biological clock now had had all but wound down in the four years since the tragedy. The pastor learned from Melanie that After about two years of struggling with doubt and depression, Melanie and her husband sought answers to their question from a Bible teacher that she knew and respected. The answer she received was consistent with the theology she had grown up with. God has a reason for everything, the Bible teacher confidently told her. There are no accidents. In God's providence, he continued, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And you just have to trust that God knows and always does what's best. The hand that smites is also the hand that heals. You just have to trust that, Melanie. Trust that God is working for your good. When Melanie asked the Bible teacher what good the Lord might have intended by taking her baby and now leaving her without a child, the Bible teacher suggested there was a lesson she and her husband were to learn from this event. When the timing is right, the teacher said, and God's timing is always right, he assured her, and when you've learned what God wants to teach you, Perhaps then God will bless you with another child. Or perhaps, he added gently, 
It's simply not his will for you to have children. God works in mysterious ways, he continued. For, for some reason, this tragedy and, and being without children is the plan God has for you, is what God desires for you and wills for you. Maybe he's allowed this to happen to you to, to help equip you um, to help someone else who goes through the same pain. Melanie then told the pastor that Sunday morning that she had accepted this instruction from her Bible teacher as gospel truth. But, she also confided, uh, she felt guilty. Guilty because of the difficulty she continued to have trusting God's plan. Trusting that God's plan for her included such tragic loss and misery. And so now, four years after her baby's death and after two years of struggling with guilt at being unable to passionately or fully trust God, Melanie asked the pastor that morning, can you help me to understand Can you help restore my trust in God's plan for me so I can once again find my passion for living? That's a, um, that's a true story that um, I have no doubt happens all the time. Or well, maybe specific details are changed, but it goes like that, that story. Surveys show that... Um, Many who refuse to believe in God, or even those who do believe in God, who refuse or are unable to trust more in God with more passion, do so because they have this picture of God that they find indefensible. They assume, they've been taught that believing in God means accepting that He causes, He orchestrates, He is behind and ultimately responsible for, as Creator, all the evil in the world. Everything. That happens is the working out of his plan. And since many people can't with integrity accept that, they either hold back or are unable to fully trust God or live passionately like our friend Melanie. 
And so they end up struggling along like she did in sort of a lukewarm, passionless faith. Or they reject God altogether. And so over the next few weeks, I'm, um, I'm going to try and uh, tackle this problem with you in a series um, that I'm calling, Is God to Blame? Quite simply, if he is to blame for tragedy and misery in our lives, it can and does, for many at least, create a barrier to believing or more fully trusting in him. But if God is not to blame, then that way to belief and trust is um, opened up, that barrier is lessened or taken away. And I want to tackle this um, with you. What I'm going to be doing over the next several weeks is, is offering for your consideration what I believe um, is a fuller or more complete picture of God than the picture of God that the Bible teacher painted to Melanie. That picture where tragedy and evil is all part of God's plan and will and desire for us. And while this more complete picture will be new to many of us, it really isn't new at all because it's been there in the Bible all along. But it doesn't often get equal time or emphasis to that picture of God that Melanie was given in our story this morning. And so to begin, what I'm suggesting to you by the end of our series, Lord willing, will be a more complete picture of God. What better place to start than in the beginning? Your Bibles are open to Genesis 2 and 3, where we first discover, really, the foundation, or at least a significant piece of the foundation, of Melanie's struggle, or anyone's struggle, really, with fully trusting God. I'm reading beginning at Genesis 2, verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put a man he had formed, or put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Drop down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you'll surely die. And so God gives Adam and Eve um, freedom 
But he also gives them a loving prohibition. They're not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, much has been written on those two trees, and that one, the knowledge of good and evil tree in particular. Um, but for this morning, let me summarize it this way, what that tree stands for. God is the one and only judge of all the earth. He alone, it's his place alone, because he alone has enough knowledge and enough wisdom to make accurate judgments about all those details of what's good and what's evil, and who's good and who's evil. In other words, God's prohibition against eating from the tree of, uh, of good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil, is similar to the New Testament's prohibition against judging. Against judging others or even, ironically for Adam and Eve, judging what's good and evil for them, regardless of what God says about it. Let God do that, the entire Bible warns. And we are not God. And if we try to be, if we take on judging good and evil on our own, God knows we'll be miserable because we're not capable of doing it. Only God is. And so the prohibition from eating from that tree of taking for ourselves the right to judge, God says don't do that. It's a loving prohibition because when we try, we're miserable. Let's pick up the action again in Genesis 3, verse 1. Eve is now in the picture, and so you just know there's going to be trouble. Just kidding. Man. Someone just got it. Pray for them. I can kid with you on that because those of you who have been here for any length of time know that whenever I crack uh, open Genesis 2 and 3, I always emphasize that Adam is there too. No doubt about it, Adams. And so a serpent shows up to talk to Eve with Adam sitting right there, who was with her, the text says. The serpent said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Verse 4, You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And right there, we see the devil's method of tempting Adam and Eve. One way to phrase it, at least, is this. The devil tries to undermine their trust in God. You say, what do you mean? Well, Satan, that great liar himself, suggests to Adam and Eve that God is, in fact, the liar. God lied, Satan says. God lied when he told you guys that you'd die if you ate from the tree. He lies. The serpent hisses. Don't trust him. And you can tell it's a lie by taking upon yourself the responsibility for looking at the circumstances around you 
and judging for yourself whether it's true. Look at the apple. Look at the forbidden fruit. Looks good, doesn't it? How could that be bad for you? Consider yourself about what it would be to be like God. How could that be bad for you? God must be lying. And the devil gives Adam and Eve a false picture of God, that God is someone who cannot be trusted. And Adam and Eve bite. They bite on the lie and on the forbidden fruit. They buy it. They decide God isn't trustworthy, and they take matters into their own hands. And the serpent's false picture of God, that God cannot be trusted, is the foundation of what separates us from God. And I'll suggest to you this morning that it remains the foundation of many people's hesitancy to be intimate with God even today. For Adam and Eve, they considered the circumstances around them, how good the fruit looked, and concluded, you know what? God must be lying, and therefore he can't be trusted. For many today, we look at circumstances around us and see such things as Aurora and Columbine, and we conclude for ourselves, wow, God said he's all-powerful and can do anything. And he also said he loves us. But he didn't stop that. He must be lying. And they don't or can't trust him. That false picture of God that he can't be trusted, it's still today at the foundation of our separation from God. But here's the good news. Just as that false picture of God, that he's a liar and can't be trusted, separates us from him, the true picture of God is the foundation that restores us to him. That false picture separates us from him, but the true picture unites us with him, and so that begs the question, where do we find the true picture of God? Where's the best place? Where's the number one place to look? The picture that is the foundation of restoring our communion with him, if the true picture of who God is unites us to him, then tell me, tell me, what is that true picture? The false picture spun by the devil is that God cannot be trusted. So what's the true picture that unites us to God? And the clear and unequivocal answer in all of Scripture to that question, the true picture of God is Jesus Christ. Amen? I am the way and the truth and the life, Jesus declares in John 14. If you really knew me, Jesus continues, you would know my Father as well. 
From now on, Jesus says to his disciples, you do know him and have seen him because you know and have seen me. In other words, Jesus is the true picture of God. Seeing Jesus is seeing God. Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, doesn't get it. I'll paraphrase his response. Philip replies, huh? Or in Hebrew, ma, which translated into English means, huh? Or what? And so Philip says, after Jesus says that, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. Huh? I like Philip. He asked the questions I would have asked. And so Jesus patiently, but rather adamantly repeats himself for his slow-to-understand disciple. Philip, Jesus says, how can you say, show us the Father? Don't you know me, Philip? After all this time together, Philip. And then Jesus makes this remarkable statement. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Wow, what a statement. Anyone who has seen Jesus, the Son, has seen God the Father. Jesus is the true picture of God. Jesus is God revealing himself to humanity. Jesus is God's self-revelation. And he's not just one revelation among many of who God is. No, Jesus is the revelation of God. John opens his gospel by declaring, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Jesus is not a Word of God. He is the Word of God. Word being how God expresses himself, how God communicates, how he even acts when he says, let there be light. Jesus is who God is. He's the Word, the expression, the true picture of God. Oh, I haven't even talked about love yet. God is, in Scripture we're told, unsurpassable love, pure love, unabashed love, love beyond measure. A greater love simply cannot be conceived. And that makes sense in light of what we just said about Jesus being the true picture of God. Because greater love has no one than this, the Bible says, that to lay down one's life for one's friends. And what did Jesus, the true picture of God himself, do? He laid down his life for everyone. Jesus is the true picture of God that unites us with him. He trumps the lie that God can't be trusted. He redraws the false picture that God cannot be trusted. And that brings us back to Melanie. The question I have for the Bible teacher that answered her questions, the question I have is this. Where, oh where, 
is Jesus, the true picture of God in your answer. If Melanie or anyone is struggling with trusting God, struggling with the false picture and lie that, boy, God can't be trusted, shouldn't the answer to their struggle include the true picture of God in Jesus Christ and include his insurpassable love? Where is Jesus in the love of God? In a picture of God that only counsels or only says, you know what, God caused or allowed or willed the death of your baby. Where's Jesus in the answer? You see God's power in that answer. You see God's sovereignty in that answer and his control. But where's the only or the best true and completely sufficient true picture of God? Jesus and the love of God in that answer. Something's missing. Something's incomplete in an answer to tragedy that only looks at it through the lens of God's power and control. Here's what I hope for you, for me, that God can accomplish in this sermon series. To bring some relief to a problem that I feel personally and that I feel felt in many in the church and in many of you I know. And in many outside of the church who don't yet know God. And the problem goes like this. They hear the truth of Scripture that God is all-power omnipotent. And they hear that his love is unsurpassable. And then they see Columbine, Aurora. And they watch as their own child is choked to death by its cord during birth. And then they're asked to love the one who caused or allowed, however directly or indirectly, with all their heart and all their soul and all their might, to run and give the one who let that happen to them in some fashion and to cling to him in love. And understandably, it seems to me, that bear hug isn't quite a bear hug. Because even as you're going to the one, the only one that you know can help and bring comfort and clinging to him, help me, if there's something in the back of your mind that says, wait a minute, the one I'm clinging to is the one who also caused it, And so something's missing, it seems to me, from that picture of God that only teaches God is responsible and his plan includes every detail of everything that happens to you.
And for the next several weeks, I want to unpack for you something to add to that picture, not to take away from it because there is truth in God's power and sovereignty and control, but to add something that I feel is desperately needed to give us a fuller, more complete picture and one that I pray enables us to not hold back anything from that bear hug that God is waiting and desperately wanting to give us. And I'd love to start to paint that picture for you right now, but the time says you'll have to come back next week. I hope you do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for giving us the true picture of who you are in the love of Jesus. Help us, Father. Help us when we struggle of, when we struggle or if we struggle with feeling that you love us that much because of the pain in our life. Help us, Father, to push through that doubt, that old temptation of the devil, to conclude from that circumstance of pain that you can't be trusted. Father, would you please, in the coming weeks, give me the words to say in this deep end of the pool. Give Rebecca and the praise team the inspiration for the music that takes us and helps us to draw a fuller, more complete picture of you. Father, with all my heart, that will better enable your people to run unabashedly and live with passion for you who are love. I ask this in no less than Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Would you stand, please, for the benediction this morning? comes from one of my favorite verses. I know one of your favorite verses, too, or many of you, Jeremiah 29, verse 11. And there God is talking through the prophet Jeremiah to his people of Israel. And I think to us today, too. And God himself says this to his people. For I know... The plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. The very words of God, in Jesus' name, amen. Have a great day. God bless you all.